So yeah, welcome to Little Gay Guide. Uh, this is Andy Wibbles. I'm Ron Zakai. Uh, Andy and I have been friends for many years, and he's actually one of the forces behind the conception and the fleshing out of what Little Gay Guide could have become. Uh, and I owe you thanks for that, by the way. So thank you. Without further ado, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, uh, okay, my name is Andy Wibbles. Uh, live here in San Francisco for the past 12 years with my amazing husband, Ron. Uh, I'm a uh, marketing executive for a company, tech company downtown. Uh, my cat is at my feet, so he may be biting me in just a second. I've got the spray bottle ready to go. Uh, <laughs> originally from the Midwest, I'm an Indiana boy. Um, I'm also a blogger for the past you know, 20 years and uh, mostly do a lot of writing work. My background's in performing arts like piano, uh, directing and, and theater. One of those things when we were talking about Little Gay Guy being a book and describing the whole theater, uh, I, I always knew no matter what it is, if the collaboration ever goes forward, you will take over the theater side slash gay history slash, right. <laughs> yeah, slash uh, gay entertainment, I should say. Where do you want to begin? Where do you want to begin when it comes to just our point in time or? Yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> that's where are we in this civilization right now <laughs> oh jesus that you want to start from the decline of the civilized world versus the uprising of what could be an utopia or do you want to start from covid and gay man i mean there is that's, they're the same thing <laughs> <laughs> um no i you know uh i think that i had a friend that said you know between Trump and the reaction of Black Lives Matter and COVID-19 that this is the year you find out who everybody really is <laughs> for good or for bad. So I think, you know, these times have shown people and, and what their priorities are for better or for worse, for selfish or for empathetic, you know. Um, so I think that's been the main theme of the year really is as we're all kind of locked into our, our isolated worlds right now. And I think, you know, here in San Francisco, we're probably extra sensitive to it all because we've had the longest and strictest shutdown in the country that started March 16th, I think. Yep. Um, but we also have one of the lowest uh, death rates in the country. With we, I think we just now have had over 130 deaths, which for San Francisco County is huge. Um, and California still has bad numbers because like all the SoCal people kind of like fucked it up for all the NoCal, North California people. Hopefully it's gonna get better. We just moved to the yellow tier here in the city. So I think restaurants can open 50% indoors, bars can have, bars without food can have outdoor patronage, and then movie theaters might be opening up a little bit too. Yeah, we finally, we actually, I, I, I don't know what's gonna happen when it comes to movie theaters. That's a really good tangent in a sense of, because the business model will not work without the food and drinks, you really can't sustain, right. unless they completely restructure, but what we were talking about actually at home was, Maybe they'll have to change the business model altogether and there'll be a lot of independent operators that will walk into the spaces that the big ones cannot afford anymore uh, in order to, and, you know, like like single distribution. Yeah, and I mean, the, the current business model was when they broke up the cartel back when the studios owned theaters. So it's like, we already had this kind of breakup and that's why 50% you know, goes to the studios, 50% goes to the theaters and they have to make all the money concessions. So I think what I was thinking about in that vein too, is like we're seeing that replicate with all the streaming services where it used to be, I think this was in the thirties or twenties, they broke that up with the antitrust where it was like the studios, you know, owned the actors. Right, the right, right, the thirties. And the films and the, and 
production and the exhibition in the theater. So like they had that entire pipeline locked down. Sorry, my cat's meowing for some reason. It's okay, my husband just walked in the door. So it's, 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 life happens. He acts like he's dying and he's a very lucky cat. He's- He just knows you're paying attention to somebody else, that's all. Yes, when I'm on a work call, he will show his butt in my Zoom. <laughs> but no, I think that with the streaming service and now you're kind of replicating that whole channel where the technology is owned by the same people that are producing the media, that are selling the media, that are making the money off the media. So it's like we're replicating an entire distribution channel all over again. I mean, it's not in person, it's not on site, so it doesn't feel like a monopoly, but we may get back to that point where it's like this entire business model is you know, suppressing innovation in the industry. It does. But you know, at the same time, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the entertainment industry or like movie industry because they have all that shitty fucked up accounting. They do. Like if I was elected president, I would just like tell the IRS, just go like prosecute those assholes for like eight years. And then we can have like- But they don't, make, they don't make a 10th as much as the tech companies. That's like, if you look at it, the industry sizes, if we need to break the monopolies, we need to what Google is going through right now, which is like this decade long. It's gonna be a decade long, you know that because we have the example of Microsoft. It's gonna take about a decade for them to actually antitrust Google on any yeah. real level. Um, it was so weird that all the um, all the uh, attorney generals um, for the new Google antitrust uh, thing that just um, came through, they're all Republican states. I thought that was so strange. I would not have suspected that at all. Um, but no, I, like I said, it's sort of, you know, everybody is exhausted at their wits end, you know. Uh, so when you say- down, yeah. One day my husband will be down. You know, if we're both having a down day, we just go back to bed. It's like, let's just sleep for a little bit and try this whole day all over again. Um, and I think it's just um, the unending uncertainty, I think is what drives you crazy. Cause you're just like, I don't know when this is ending. I don't know when it's going to get better. It may not get better sooner. And- I think we're probably looking at another six that. months, by the way. I'm, I'm, I, I honestly believe that we're probably looking at another six months worth of very similar life to what we have right now, which is the same kind of introspective four walls that we're locked, they've been locked in for more than six months now. So the reality, I think that you were referring to in terms of everybody's showing you who themselves are is because they have no other choice. You know, they're locked in this cage and no matter what animal you are, or what kind of animal you are, you are going to lash out with your truest self. And I think we're seeing that in, in because, because your madness is now confined to your own world and your own space, you are going to show your true colors and forget it. Mean, if, if you're lashing out is going to Atlanta and getting fucked up at a circuit party. You're not uh, really lashing out. I mean, <laughs> it's not really harm reduction. <laughs> but, but, did but, you come but, to two parties this weekend? Not four, you know, <laughs> did you do have as much meth this weekend. It's not really harm reduction if you're not you know, all in. Yeah, I'm uh, but no, no, but, but it's, a, it's a very valid tangent because we just came back from uh, Puerto Vallarta and, and they're very much unobservant uh, when it comes to, I mean, they, they do the, the temperature check, they definitely do the masks up to a point, and I would double click that up to a point. And then once you get through the door, when it comes to any event, uh, I want to name names of places because there's just no point, but uh, certain places, they'll be like this, this, the moment you got in, it just caution goes out right the door it just it just does uh so we didn't go to the clubs of course for that specific reason because i'm like okay that we're already doing enough things that are are, are kind of like teetering on the this chasm of danger 
and and there are other things we can do to mitigate them and this is one of them which is don't walk into a space that you know there's like 200 or 300 people crammed into one room just don't do that uh, go on well no, i was going to say and you know here in the u.s you have the producers all saying you know masks will be required social distancing is being enforced so it's like they know that they're not supposed to be doing what they're doing they have this fig leaf on their promotions and then you get in and they're not being observant. So it's like, they never really gave a shit anyway. So, no. and I, and you know, there was that death at the club in Atlanta a few weeks ago, which was not due to COVID-19, but I think it was an overdose. And because um, there were no EMTs in the club, the guy passed away um, after, he passed away, I think in the ambulance, but he'd been on the crowd had been giving him CPR for about 10 minutes. Um, and Which would not have happened in a normal situation if we had EMT on site because you would have solved that then and there. That's the reality. Right, but the EMT would have been a buzzkill and would have said, um, I'm not going to work here unless you start observing these standards. At the same time, you know, the producers will say, well, it's Atlanta, you know, it's Georgia. They don't have any rules in effect. It's like, I mean, I guess that's your easy reach excuse, I guess. Yes. yes. Um, and don't forget how litigative this country is when it comes to any kind of uh, premise. So the, the, the thought process, I would assume, when it comes to a club owner is less about the well-being of the patrons and more about making money. There are really significant exceptions, especially in our community. Uh, but, but, but even then, when you're opening a business within COVID, I can't say it's for the community. I would put a very significant air quotes around the intentions of a person opening a club in the midst of a pandemic. Right. And, you know, and that's not at all to dismiss the emergency we're going to have in the queer entertainment industry or queer culture industry, because we're going to lose a lot of venues. Um, we're going to lose a lot of production teams and a lot of organizations that, that produce a lot of art and culture that people enjoy, whether it's a dance party or, you know, whatever else it is. Because I think that these nonprofits and organizations cannot survive that long. Um, with no sort of income coming in. So I think we're gonna see, you know, the transformation of the entertainment industry as a whole in the, in the globally, you know, um, as well as for our little sort of queer gay center as well. So to, to, to really kind of dive into to what that would mean, because when I look at it societally speaking, or when I take a broader perspective, or I try to take a broader perspective when it comes to, this is disrupting everything and, and I don't want to belittle this idea of the word everything, but it does pretty much disrupt everything. And there is a part of me that that latches on, and that's part of my personality. You are well aware of it, that I will hold on to the silver line um, in spite of almost all evidence to the contrary. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of those things is like, you know, the doomsday timer for 2050 versus the reality of everything is actually genuinely getting better. Like our, our connectivity is getting better, our ability to collaborate uh, remotely from one another is getting better. A lot of things are genuinely and objectively are getting better, but there's there's a, a overarching kind of sense of danger. Back to the club question, considering a lot of the major players are gonna go through a pretty significant disruption and a pretty significant restructuring at the very least. What I, my hope, my server lining is bohemian culture in its truest sense, in other words, the cheap, the greedy, the, 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 the creative, the oppressed almost, uh, will come more to the surface because they will have to be more guerrilla about they, I'm saying they being the entertainment industry as a whole, specifically for us, the gay entertainment industry or the gay nightlife industry. Um, my silver lining is the bohemian gay life will come back. My, my silver lining is we might see the greedier side 
that was sideswiped by first aids now now this um we might see more of what was there before those times well and i i i think about that a lot because i think you know i probably talk about this way too often but i think about san francisco in the 60s and 70s where somehow the the density of gay men the incomes the economics of real estate and venues and you know running a bar led to you know 35 venues in one city you know it was specific enough that there was like oh that's the black biker bar that's the bdsm club for just that particular group of people this is the bar this is yeah it was very very secondary to specialize into those groups um and i you know and that's also a product of post-world war ii culture and sort of people being enclaves but i i think that will it ever go back to that in san francisco given the real estate situation and the way the market works you know, it's like you have to have a bombed out warehouse to open up a club because you're not going to build a club from scratch out of the ground. You would make more money building, you know, right. right. So I think, um, I don't know if that will happen. in. But not anymore. Actually, no, let's take that specific assertion. When is you, you would not take a warehouse and you will build it into a club. You'll take a warehouse building into condos. We're looking at what 20 some percent of, of San Francisco real estate is, is commercial. Uh, it's office space. So A, I, I just, just complete side note, I do believe that the conversion industry in terms of commercial to residential will be huge in the next 10 years. There's no doubt there. But then the other element of the same uh, uh, conversation and the same topic is what you just said. There is no point in building more condos now. There is a viable, pretty much pertinent exodus that's happening in what, for four months now from San Francisco. And that warehouse could become a club the rents will become cheaper. Uh, somebody will be able to put up a party. Um, I'm talking, you know, post therapeutics, post vaccination. Um, so, would do you not see that silver lining, or I'm being too optimistic? Because I, I am guilty when, of that. When has a city ever turned back this clock? Which city have turned back this clock? When has a city turned back this clock? That's a very good question. I think we're we're, we're probably like, going to see that both. That- if you want that, you know, oh, how it used to be with the gay bohemian culture that you're referring to, which is so many different facets in so many different ways. Like when has a city or town or region gone past that into, I don't know what we would call the opposite of that. And I, I, grittier, to- let's just say grittier because there's it's just, a, that's a kind of like overarching, it's, it's more gorilla, it's cheaper, it's bohemian. Uh, when did a city walk back from metropolitan uh, mega financial complex to to back to Bohemia, probably after every revolution, probably after every single revolution. That's that would be my 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 history lesson to myself. I think, uh, I think I think I think Paris saw that right after the revolution because they overthrown the the what was the tried and true have have nots conversation that ended up pretty bloody. But but they did went pretty Bohemian right after that. Um, you know the artists did flock back to Paris after that. Uh, is COVID not the same kind of shaking? Well, I, I'm not completely convinced that that on-site work is done. I think there'll be some, because you know, I feel like we're all assuming remote work is the new thing and oh, office real estate's done for forever. I think there's going to be some cultural hitch that people are so invested in the idea of I go to an office and I do my job. Right. What might change that I think about is if the companies start to depress the wages to say, well, I mean, I'm not going to pay you uh, SF this wage because you can either live in SF or live in the Midwest and make the same amount of money. I think we're going to see wages go down, definitely. And I feel like that's 
the unspoken thing in this whole conversation is, you know, all it's the- It's a huge thing, by the way. That's, 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 that's the topic we're not touching. Go on. Right, no, it's just that the, the benefit for the large companies is, oh, we can pay our development team to be in Minneapolis or in Indianapolis um, and still have great talent, but they're all remote. And so we have to pay sort of the SF salaries that you have to have to live in, you know, Portland or Seattle or Austin or New York um, to keep your talent, you know, in-house. So, um, you know, I, I think about it a lot. I think about, and also I think I'm having a very constrained idea of what it would be to like if things got better as far as like entertainment and venues and going out and that whole thing. And that's a very kind of, you know, the whole like large warehouse club thing is a very like urban white gay point of view to have. Absolutely. When, like, there could be a ton of other independent media and art happening. Um, but again, I always go back to the economics of like, if you can't have the art, art if, the, if the artist class can't live in the city, they're not gonna make the art. And if they can't have studio space, they're not gonna make the art. Um, I mean, for us, it was Oakland and Berkeley for a very long time for like the, the, the artists of San Francisco. I came here, what, about 20 years ago. And we had pretty much uh, enclaves, like you just said, of artists producing significant amount of art all around San Francisco, be it in Lower Hayes or in, in Mission or pretty much, I, I would say everywhere. There was some element, remember we had clubs uh, 20 years ago. We, we were like clubs clubs, Universe was an actual club club. Um, but back to today, I guess my hope is that there is some silver lining in terms of our community and that we will get some sort of either venues or production coming into our city out of this, but you're correct, the economics might play completely to the contrary. The, yeah. econo the unit economics might not work. The unit economics might not. So what is the world you, because you're just full disclosure, both you and I are our own version of futurists in terms of we hypothesize what will be around the band quite often. How would that look like then? What would what, what is your assumptions and assertions when it comes to what comes around the bend for us? I mean, I feel like it can't. It has to be a new city. Like I feel like we all have to choose where the new gay enclave is going to be because we've run up the real estate everywhere else. So like the baby gays, the poor queers can't live in the cities because we've run up the real estate so bad. What is your what is your intuition? Like like let's let's throw assertions or or well educated guesses out the window for the sake of just intuition. Because I know I, for you and I, white gay men in a, in, a, in a city, I mean, San Francisco is admittedly a town with, as I often say, with a heartbeat of a city, but it still has that city vibe. And, and it's definitely one of the game makers of our country. So, so speaking from that perspective, what do you think would be around our future? What would be the next year after COVID is done? And the thing we're also skipping is the, uh, how technology exerts itself on gay enclaves. That if you don't have to have the bars because you have the apps or the networks, the online forums, the online groups, um, there's less of a need to have in-person interactions that would require having this whole ecosystem of. of but but of I would I would argue that we we chose I don't know I will speak for myself not for you but we chose to stay in San Francisco in spite of the desire let's say for to have children which will well will be allowed financially or otherwise in almost any other place in this country with our with our salaries but then bringing it back to San Francisco. We chose to stay because no matter where we go, look, when I see you at the gym, regardless of us planning that moment or not, which is 99% of the time not, uh, it's a moment of reaffirming of, of tribalism for me that is pretty much invaluable. 
it has no price mm-hmm. tag. It doesn't really resonate with, um, I can put a, a, a quantitative dollar sign next to that experience, but I can put a pretty significant qualitative dollar sign next to it. And that's why we'll make this argument, you know, I will choose no family, stay in San Francisco in our shoebox worth of a place in order to be around the place that I can walk around to my grocery store or my gym and cross paths with you or any one of our tribesmen. That's, that's, that's just a well, reality. I think, and I think that, you know, uh, we did put a price on it because we were supposed to move to Chicago by now. <laughs> you know, from point of view, it's like, well, uh, we were hoping, uh, for people that are watching this, um, we were supposed to move to Chicago back in July. We've been here in SF for 12 years. We lived in Chicago for 10 years. I'm from Indiana, my husband's from Milwaukee. So we were trying to get back to the Midwest to be close to family. I mean, our folks are mid seventies. Um, but like, I, I was doing a cost benefit analysis of like, oh, I could cut our rent in half, cut our living expenses in half, save for the future um, and have enough money to actually travel. And like, we could come out here once every two, every two months, people would not know we'd left. So I think you can put a price tag on it, at least, at least we had, where it's like, uh, and all that got scuttled because my husband's currently laid off. Um, right. So he can't get a transfer to Chicago. So we're kind of waiting things out. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's it just- so how do, Wait, wait. So how does that PNL feels like? How does that profit and loss analysis in your own mind, because you were forced into the qualitative versus quantitative, unlike me, we made that choice around a dinner table, knowing that what we're putting aside uh, is, is already a choice. It's, it's a bygone choice. We already decided to stay. How was that for you? Well, I think for us, it was, we don't want to live in a shoebox. It's like, you know, we could make the sacrifice and live in a smaller place, live in a older place, uh, you know, get rid of more things that we enjoy having as gays in their mid forties as adults, you know, the jobs. So I think it's, um, we can get roommates and that have that whole puzzle. Um, but we're sort of like, you know, this is, we want something new and different. And we've been here 12 years and we've kind of lived things very, we've had a great time. It's been amazing to us, both professionally and personally. Um, but after a while, it's like, you can't just, for me, it's like, we, the way that I put it is, like, unless I got a big raise, or my husband literally changed industries. It's like, we can live in, we can live in San Francisco, we just can't stay in San Francisco. That's, that's fair. And then it's a conversation I think a lot of people are having right now in this moment, considering your circumstances. Well, I think that there's a reason like every, literally everybody else has left. Like unless you bought 20 years ago yes. or you just got here or you have- Or you rent control people, like we were. I mean, that's, control, yeah, yeah. You probably have already left. And I, I have no delusions that we're that special that we have to stay because, you know, if we, it's, it's like, no, this is, it's time to, you know, do some new things and figure out what our mid forties and fifties are going to be, you know. Back to the but, philosopher uh, worth of, of uh, the philosopher in you and the philosopher in me. Um, gay community from now to post COVID topic, just to kind of tie all the loose ends of this conversation coming back from PV was a very interesting dialogue around both the way the pictures were portrayed online. And then you get the backlash of you guys were not safe. How dare you killing everybody else? Um, that's, that's, that was one extreme and one side. And then the other extreme was, oh my God, you had a vacation. That's amazing. But, but this, this mitigation, because at least to my perception, I do believe we have at least six months more left of this and, and to not have a spike worth of risk would be for me, a mental health challenge more than a physical health challenge. And I, that was the decision. It was just like, 
we're going to get this week. And this is the only country we can go to. This is where we're going. Um, <clears throat> by the way, we are negative. We were not that dangerous in the things we saw. We definitely did dangerous things. But I, I always put it in again, and you will resonate with that part, to the surrounding of the late 2000. In other words, positive and undetectable, you are very safe. Negative and, and, and negative and, and haven't played with anybody since is, is just as safe. And people could make their own mitigation of risk around anything in between those two. Um, and I felt being in PV, making those decisions, you can you can counter by all means. Uh, but that was my sense around PV. It was a mitigation of risk. And it was a conversation around what risk we're comfortable with, with everybody around us having kind of the same conversations. In other words, are you open and honest about where you are? And then are you open and honest about where you'll be? And then when we came back here, it was, we're not going to do anything until we're tested and sure. we're going to give it enough time and all that jazz. Um, you had at least three different facial expressions there that I wanted. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, yes, there's the sorting with, if you have the complete full knowledge of what your status is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a STD is a lot harder to catch than a communicable disease that is highly contagious. So like there are, caveats all tucked in there. But like I said, everybody's making the best decisions that they know how for themselves. And, um, you know, I was trying to, I always try to think of what other cohorts are in each other's fucking business all the time. Like, <laughs> and it's sort of like, you know, is it a, is it like a church group or like a PTA where like, <laughs> you know, the gays are just like up in each other's business all the fucking time. And I think- uh, I think all clicks do though, to, the, to, to that specific premise, uh, I would say all either tribalistic or communal uh, elements of our society have that built into them, be it your church group or your gay group or your clique. Uh, I think all of them come with, with an inherent underlining or underpinning of gossip. Uh, it's well, just- we're, it's the technology makes it over networked and makes it faster to yes. spread the yes. messages and it also makes it easier to divorce things out of context yes you have your megaphone is a lot louder and your reach is almost infinite yeah so and there's no there's no before there's no before present and after because it's like the thing you post today could be a screen cap that pops up in two years and there's no date attached to it and you which and it often does yeah. Uh, we, we see it in like the resurgence of- If you want to hear about this more, it's called context collapse. If you want to read about context collapse. Dive in a little bit more because we have a little time and I don't want to- <laughs> no, well, The whole idea that social media and technology is, as it is today, you know, a tweet is a tiny um, atomic particle of, of culture. And it can be easily taken out of the context of the stream it was in, the day it was posted, the news environment, the personal mental environment the person was in, that can all be divorced and that item can just sit as it is and be taken in a completely different context and divorced of its surroundings. And so when we jump into a conversation to a forum where we're not a member, we don't know the culture, we don't know the background, we don't know the history, uh, we make a lot of assumptions very quickly so you have things like Gamergate and, you know, um, or like the, 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 what was the Ozarks beach back in, and right now within COVID. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, yes, now. it was bad, but at the same time, the angle was so doctored. I'm not saying that that was the right behavior for that beach. Actually, we know it was a super spreader event in many ways, but every time you get these pictures, I'm like, guys, you're choosing a very specific angle to show that people are not distancing just to kind of hype 
the reaction on that megaphone without infinite reach. And I don't, I, I don't just dislike it. I hate it because as you say, it's a piece of content that's divorced of any context. It's a, it's a piece of content that you just kind of stand there on its own and you let the zeitgeist be the judge, even though there was a moment in time and circumstances and probably a lot of drivers for that moment when it was posted, but now they can be divorced and that content takes a life of its own. It becomes well, a Frankenstein yeah. monster that's been awoken years after Frankenstein itself been dead. Well, it's like the, you know, the guy that posts the videos from Atlanta um, as Instagram stories. It's like, you dickhead, those can be easily captured. And they were. And they were posted with his name on them. With you, know, you I recognize SF people in the photos. I'm like, of course, that bitch is a down front. Of course, that's who it is down front, you know. Um, <laughs> so you, you're also communicating in this contextless way. So you, you can't act surprised when people, you know, take things when people make leaps that are kind of obvious and logical. Like, yes. if it's a bunch of white gays acting like terrible white gays, they're probably acting like terrible white gays. Yes. And I mean, if, if, if your context and the content are matching in a sense of, we are terrible white gays, we're doing terrible white gay things, and then you pull it out of that point in time in which it was posted and it was surfaced as white gay men doing terrible things, you can't really divorce one from the other. The context in this sense actually does match the content. Uh, because no and matter I, what you were going to surface it. The, the capturing of the media and posting the media is almost like this dare to say, I dare you to call me out for being a... a terrible you know, white gay man. I'm sorry. I'm going to actually, I'm gonna actually so reinforce then, your statement. You, yeah, you have you know, all the fights and Google groups and all the other bullshit. It's like, you know... You did this to be seen. You did this to rub this in other people's faces. You did this to be able to say, I can do this and you can't. And you can't uh, me, right. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's 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 a social economic status thing. It's a racial thing. It's a, a I think I think it's actually combined. I think there is a, a you and I talk about it a lot when we were talking about initially about little gay guide and the initial premise. Both you and I and and please correct me. I don't want to speak for you. We know the amount of privilege that comes into our life for being a white gay man in a metropolitan city, yep. and I think our awakening. You, you, you have a person of color for your husband. I think you see it much more clearly than I ever would be allowed to in terms of my insight. Uh, but in the same token, I'm aware that there is a lot of things that we do as gay white men are rubbing the noses in everybody else's, uh, rubbing, making everybody else's nose be rubbed in our business by virtue of us being able to. And, and I think it's the same kind of, not to spare analogies, but it's the same kind of, I'm swimming in the ocean, I will not know the water element of it i'm swimming in privilege and i don't even aware of it and when somebody in atlanta posts that video they're aware of the ocean they're aware of the privilege they're swimming in they're they're actually describing the water to anybody else that can breathe at the moment and that's that's just just vile that's just it's not pretty terrible it's pretty terrible like it's you know we like to think that gay men we've, we've, we've learned so much as a people we've come so far where you know idealized models of masculinity and maleness and what men can do for society and it's like ladies come on <laughs> girls come <please>. god <laughs> damn it we're trying to have a civilization here you know <laughs> there's there's this thing called collaboration that requires <laughs> from us to have from from any of us to have a certain sustainable society and, and that is not happening with white gays. And actually one of the biggest surprises for most people probably listening or viewing this is gay men are fucking racist. Gay men are, are every time we have this trite picture of 
diversity. There'll be a token slightly brown person somewhere in the picture, not in the center. And we're talking about diversity because we have that one it's friend. Like, oh wait, no, he's 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 from Madrid. It's like <laughs> not the same, not the same. I, I, I have the Brazilian boyfriend, and even then, this is not a person of color, so to speak, when it comes yeah, to- you know, I'll just say, you know, if people listen to this, they're like, well, that never happens. My black and brown friends never tell, talk to me about that. I'm like, that's because they don't fucking trust you. Exactly. You've never had a black or brown friend say, you know, how, talk about the dynamics of gay dating or gay hookups or gay courtship or the gay dance floor or the gay bars and that challenge existing walking as a person of color, if they have never spoken to you about that, don't fucking ask them to, number one, it's not their fucking job. It's, it's not their job to educate you, yes, like, go on, sorry. If they never like talked about that to you, they don't fucking trust you. They don't, they but, just like, don't. Do not ask them to explain it. There's enough like, you know, that's the part of the, the, the white gays, the, the, the ones that are trying to do the right thing is to drag the other terrible ones along with us to say, you need to know about these dynamics that happen and black and brown people do not have to explain it to you or themselves to you. It is not their fucking, they're trying to live their fucking lives. Just try and be less, a little less awful every day. And, and, and be aware of the fact that when they do speak up, your responsibility is to step aside and give the space rather than stepping in or even leaning into it. Like a lot of the conversation I have, by the way, that would be an amazing topic for us for the next time, race yeah. in the gay community. Uh, that would be just, just phenomenal. But, but in terms of personal responsibility for us, the privileged one, and I have no problem double clicking on, on myself saying I am privileged when it comes to the gay community because we look or I look like they want us to look. In other words, we go to the gym and we're white and all that jazz. Uh, but, but when it comes to the people of color, when there is a moment they step up to describe uh, a, a gripe, to describe uh, an affront, to describe an assault or a hurt, our job is to shut up and listen. Shut the fuck up and amplify, basically. Yes. Other people are saying it better than you, better than you could. So just shut the fuck up and listen. That's what I, 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 I love the second yeah. word, amplify. Because we have this platform, because we have this voice, because we are listened to so much more, I would say exponentially or by a magnitude more than the people of color in our community, uh, our job is, as you say, be quiet and amplify. Uh, our job is to, to, to just to put it out there on blast and, and hope that somebody actually listens. Right, yeah. What would be, I, I, I know our next conversation is gonna be about race and- And it and, should have actual brown and black people present. I, I, I think either people your husband like, would- Why the fuck would I listen to these two assholes talk about race, for the record? 100%, 100%. And it could be your <laughs> husband from the other room, which, which actually speaks remarkably. Uh, he did confine, well, confines in you by virtue of being your husband. But, but I had difficult conversations uh, with, with your wonderful husband that, that I was not aware that the, the love is so unequally unshared and so unequally denied. So, which is which is just its own conversation and, and a quite, what's the word? Wakeful one or awakening or? or... We like it to be using the word woke, which just seems so passive. Uh, it's passive. It's not, it's, there, there, there was a lot more action involved in A, getting to that realization and B, from, from your husband to describe it. There, I think there's a lot there in terms of work that had to be done from his side, which was a, a 
both of benign. It's it's a present that he gave. It wasn't some passive thing that just happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, yay, I got shared this. No, it's 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 active. Is he there laughing at us? Just woke up. He's over there. <laughs> hey, honey. Hey. <laughs> He's making coffee. Hi. Oh, you like the, you like his shirt? You like that shirt? Isn't that cute? Oh my God. That's <laughs> the best. <laughs> I'm using the ring light, okay? I think I set it up right. I'm a little, I'm a little schwitzy, but it's okay. He's my, he's my lighting designer, so. Next conversation will be about race, but what are your closing kind of, just, just to wrap up our conversation when it comes to this conversation, I have a feeling there is a lot to mitigate when it comes to COVID just between now until what after looks like, which is its yeah. own conversation. And and I think we share the hope of, of at least some semblance of community and segmentation in terms of out spaces that may come out of this. I hope the artists come back. I hope Bohemia comes back. Um, if you look at it as a continuum, and that's my final question to you, if you look at this continuum from now all the way to post-COVID and whatever would be that, whatever would that look like in terms of gay community, what are your, what is your path? What are you charting for yourself in that world? Because you are, we're making decisions every day. We're making decisions that are pertinent to the now and we're making decisions that are pertinent to the tomorrow. I mean, like if I look at the overall arc our year was supposed to have in terms of like moving cities, moving back to the Midwest, being closer to the family, having, you know, deepening that community after spending so much time tending to the one here, you know, because, um, you know, I, I live in, uh, I'm from Southern Indiana. So to, for us to get home is to fly to Louisville is strangely expensive and takes like a day and a half to get there. Right. Um, so we don't go home very often at all. And right now we can't because my parents are mid seventies and they have a lot of comorbidities. Um, so they worry about everything. But, um, you know, part of it for us, I think was let's figure out what our next 10 years is going to be. You know, we had 10 years in Chicago. That's where we met 12 years here. Let's figure out what like our, you know, I'm 45 now, what's 45 to 55 going to be? Right. And will it be, you know, remote work and a better job or a new job or not a new job or staying where I am or, you know, sit, having, you know, saving for a house, having a fucking house like every other person in this country, people. yes. We have friends in their 20s in Chicago, they're buying houses. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> this hurts. Like, well, I had a lot of fun in San Francisco, so I mean, you know. <laughs> but qualitative I think, um, versus quantitative, that's a, that's a valid right. argument, go on. <laughs> um, but I, I think we will still stay very connected to the community here because we'll, we'll come back frequently and stay in, and visit and be with people because we just have some deep connections here, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, it's post-COVID world is gonna be, um, I mean, I hope my husband's industry bounces back. He works for the airlines. So hopefully, you know, the airline, and this is his third time being, you know, he was laid off after 9-11, then after SARS epidemic, and now right. this. So it's like, you know, it's just hard to run airlines in any country, it seems like. So hopefully that bounces back. Once we have, you know, treatment protocols and vaccinations that get the death rates down a lot, people are gonna to wanna to feel like I need to go live my life. So I think you're going to see an explosion of everything, whether it's travel or events or, you know, artwork or exhibitions, you know, somebody, there was a, there was a good thread on Reddit actually. This is actually a good way to close, um, which was, you know, 2020 was such a fucking shit show. Everything happened, it was terrible. Yes. What if the office happened for 2021? And one of the, the threads, the best ones was like, you know, all of these artists that have been working in seclusion suddenly, 
have all this amazing literature and art and music and culture. Um, and like, you know, everybody sort of feels more invested in live events and personal connections and in-person stuff. It's like, that would be the ideal. Yes. Uh, who knows how long that would last before it gets sort of depressed by, you know, online. Systemic uh, oppression, systemic standards, systemic industries. And then, you know, and you and I talk a lot about like, well, you know, are we gonna have the fucking guillotines come out? Because like, you know, you were saying that, well, yes. you know, post-revolution France had some nice clubs. It's like, well, <laughs> we had to kill a lot of rich people to get there. And you think about like Weimar, Germany, Berlin, it's like, well, it was a great party, but then some shit happened, you know, or. <laughs> the, those, are, those are actually the only examples I had in mind when you asked that question. I'm not joking because you're right, between metropolitan financial superstructure to Bohemia, it requires that little midstep, which is a guillotine, which is unfortunate. Either I mean, like outside of an outside of an outright global war an, an outright global guillotine moment, because don't forget the systems that we're talking about right now are not as singular or intimate or insular as as France was or Berlin was. They're 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 much more interconnected. So in order for that moment to really step into Bohemia or even give a chance. Uh, which which is its own thing to the rest of the population and by rest I mean 97 percent of them uh, 97 percent that's not the rest it's all of them it's it's the, to give a chance to all of us um, something pretty severe needs to happen which I'm hoping COVID on its own did some of the heavy lifting but from your very very eloquent point you're right it's not enough there's an extra step there and the other dynamic I always keep in mind is when has when have we encouraged people to become more selfish and they didn't become more selfish? Never. On like the contrary, have, they learned more ways to even double down on hedonism yeah. and self. Like as, as we've created dynamics and technologies and cultures that reinforce narcissism and materialism, when have we, uh, when has a society ever backed off of that? With, like you said, without a economic catastrophe that probably puts a lot of people in poverty. You know, it's sort of like all the whole social security thing they're trying, I'm like, Social security was created because like during the depression, everybody's like, oh my God, all these old people are like living in poverty and that's insane. We should change that. So it's, you know, I can't, I can't believe we're still having these discussions and arguments about but everything, you know, yeah, I can't we believe do. we're having to talk about is universal healthcare good or bad in the middle of a goddamn fucking pandemic. Like it's, I don't know, I'm not getting into politics because that's a whole other fucking hour. We'll save it for another <laughs> hour, yeah, but, but, but. But between race as a next topic and between 2021 might be an explosion of creativity and between uh, um, just being hopeful when it comes to people actually building empathy, which is, by the way, if you want to end on a positive note, I will, I will honestly say that, that yes, go ahead. No, I'm kidding. It was, of course, a positive note, whatever. Okay. <laughs> it's me. It's me. Watching this, it's like, yes, every time Ron and I get together, it's Festivus. Like we air <laughs> grievances for like an hour. So just this is like... <laughs> Part for the course, but he always is the optimistic one that is hopeful. Um, you know, I'm actually wearing my uh, four unicorn of the apocalypse shirt. Right now. <laughs> I thought it would show in the camera, but that's okay. But um, that's fine. <laughs> anyway, you were saying, I, I, the, you know, the unicorns will bring the apocalypse and it'll be rainbows. That's okay. That's that's all I'm saying <laughs> on that note. All right. Uh, thank you for everybody watching or viewing or listening. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, um, Andrew. My blog is andymatic.com, Instagram, andymatic, Graham. Um, and that's it.
That's all you have? <laughs> That's my home account. I have my business account. You don't, want that. you don't want to watch that. Okay, so say them again, just just for the record. Uh, AndyMatic.com, which I never updates my blog from 20 years. And then uh, Instagram is AndyMaticGram. And then if you want to see my husband's amazing cooking and thirst pics, uh, that's Ronomatic on Instagram. Awesome. I'm Ron Zakai. This is Andy Wibbles. This has been Little Gay Guide. Thank you very much. Of course.